Father, we thank you this morning that Christ is the one that we are to praise. That Christ's hand shall be on the neck of our enemies. And that, Lord, we as his children shall bow down to him. Lord, we thank you this morning that the skeptics shall not depart from Christ. That Christ's rule over all creation will always be. We thank you, Lord, that Christ was spoken of hundreds, even thousands of years before he was born of a virgin. And Lord, we thank you that all these prophecies that your word spoke have come true. Lord, we thank you that we can trust you. We can trust your word. We can trust, Lord, that your word is true, that your word is truth. Lord, we thank you that Christ rules and reigns right now as the rod from the stem of Jesse and that your spirit is upon him. He is the all-wise and understanding God. He is the one who has counsel and might. And Lord, he is the one that we are to go to in times of need. Lord, we thank you that our King reigns. Jesus Christ still reigns. We thank you, Lord, for this season where we celebrate Christ coming into Jerusalem, triumphant, making his entry on a cult and being praised by man. This week, the week of the passion of Christ, where Christ will endure suffering, where he will endure scorn and ridicule, where he will endure persecution and rejection as the suffering savior, as the suffering servant. Lord, help us to center our thoughts this week on the suffering of Christ, on the passion of Christ, on the suffering that he endured as the sinless savior, the sinless lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. Lord, center us on Christ and his work and what he did on our behalf. Even in the, the, the midst of all the worries that we're going to compile on ourselves this week, which we shouldn't, all the fears, all the anxieties, Lord, that, that we have this week, Lord, help us to press through those things and to put them on Christ, to give them into his care, and to focus on his suffering. And also his death on the cross. His six hours of suffering on the cross. And being victoriously raised from the dead as we will celebrate next Sunday. Lord, we thank you for Christ and for his work. May we rejoice as those who did when Christ came into Jerusalem. May we say with our voices, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Lord, truly Christ came in your name. He came to do your will. He came, as he said, not to do his own will, but the will of the Father who sent him. He came in your name, Lord. He came to fulfill your mission. And that was to provide redemption for a way for man to be reconciled unto you. 
he fulfilled their mission, Lord. He came to speak peace to the nations. And Lord, as the scripture said, we just read, his dominion shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. Lord, we thank you that there is no end to the reign of Christ, that it expands the whole earth, and that anyone who calls on his name, anyone who calls on his name in repentance and turns from their sins and turn to Christ, Lord, you will not turn them away. The call of salvation has gone out. Lord, may you continue to bring people unto yourself as your dominion rules throughout this whole earth. Lord, I also pray this morning, we thank you for the good reports coming from the Lois about her daughter and grandbaby, about Miss Deborah being able to go and visit her people and, and Mary, uh, making it through with her issue with vertigo. Lord, we thank you for bringing them through that. Lord, we pray for others this morning who may be sick in their bodies, who may be struggling with worries and doubts and fears and anxieties. Lord, that they cast them all on you, that they give them all over to you. We pray, Father, that your grace and mercy be with all of them. As First Peter said, casting all our cares on you, for you care for us. Well, may we be obedient to your word and cast our cares upon you because you do care for us. To not carry our burdens around and to nurse them as if they're a pet. But Lord, to rid ourselves of them and cast them upon your shoulders, Lord, because there's no burden that you cannot bear. The Lord Christ said himself in Matthew the 11th chapter, Come unto me, all you who are weary and are burdened, and I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Well, there's no burden of ours that is too heavy for you to carry. No burden. So, Lord, may we carry our burdens to you and give them to you and leave them there. Help us to be humble enough to do that, Lord, and not try to be filled with pride and, and try to grind it out. But Lord, to give them to you. Lord, I pray for my pastor friends this morning. This morning, be with them, Lord, as they shepherd their church as well. Strengthen them. Encourage them in the faith, whether their churches are large or small, Lord. Bless them and be with them this morning. Brother Anthony at Christian Fellowship and Phil at Redeemer, Bob at ABC, Carlton at Grace Fellowship, Justin at Mountain View, and also Lord, my brother Steve Mays at Hope Presbyterian, uh, Josh Henderson, my friend at Southside Baptist in Talladega, uh, Brothers Gobbleger and um, Josephus, our brothers in Liberia, and my friend Sylvester 
Farvadaya in Zimbabwe at his uh, new church plants. Be with that dear brother, Lord. All other pastors, all other men who are true shepherds, who are committed to biblical truth, be with those men this morning. Be with all of our churches, Lord. Strengthen all of us in the faith. Help us to continue to be faithful to your word and not turn to the right hand or to the left. But to be faithful, to persevere until the end so that you will say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. And Lord, bless this word this morning as we speak of Christ and his entry into Jerusalem that we see the purpose, the mission of Christ coming on this day, on this Palm Sunday, Lord. Just bless our time in your word this morning. Fill me with your spirit to teach and preach this text well. And send your spirit, Lord, to illuminate this passage to us this morning. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. 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 Praise the Lord for prayer and his word. Let us turn to the gospel of Luke, Luke's gospel. I need my iPad in me. I left it back there. <laughs> Thanks. Let us turn to Luke's gospel here. Thank you. We'll look at verses 28 through 40. And I'm going to read a little context around this. Uh, in Luke's gospel, uh, as I told y'all earlier this morning in the service, all four accounts of the Palm Sunday, are, are in all four of the Gospels rather, all the four Gospels give their accounts of this occasion. And uh, Luke gives his version here as we're going to uh, read here in a, in a second. He gives his version of events. Some details are in this one that are not in others, and some details are in other ones that are not in this one. But nevertheless, Luke gives a good account of Christ entering into Jerusalem. Now, of course, Luke is the same. This is the same Luke, the beloved physician who wrote the book of Acts. So this is that same Luke. Now, in the Gospel of Luke, I think back in the ninth chapter, uh, Luke spoke of Christ looking toward Jerusalem after his final rejection. And I think in John's gospel, that happened in chapter 12. So after Christ was rejected, Christ started focusing and looking toward Jerusalem, looking toward that day. And I think it was two or three months that had passed from the events in Luke, the ninth chapter, up until where we are now where Christ is entering into Jerusalem. So along the way, he passed through different towns and did different things, performed different uh, miracles. Christ had, uh, in Luke 9, he had his transfiguration where he had revealed himself uh, to the disciples. And then he foretold uh, his death. And the Samaritans had, a Samaritan village had um, rejected Christ. It says in Luke 9 and 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, taken up means to be crucified, 
he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So this was in Luke 9 and 51. So from Luke 5 until Luke 19 and 27, all between there, Jesus was going toward uh, Jerusalem, pointing to the cross. And so this culmination that we see this morning is Christ finally arriving in Jerusalem and making his entry into this city, the holy city of God. So let's look at our passage here this morning. Beginning at verse 28. And I'm going to read past that to verse uh, 44, where he wept over Jerusalem. It says, when he had said these things, this is after he said the last parable that he spoke to them. He went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, or Mount Olive, Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has yet ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you're untying it, you say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it, just as he had told them, <laughs> And as they were untying the coat, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the coat? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the coat, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread out their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, so let you know he was up and then he was going down, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice, for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones and rocks would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for your peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you do not know the time of your visitation. That's what I was speaking of earlier that I was predicting the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD when the Romans had sieged the city and destroyed the temple and killed uh, the children and everything. So Christ was lamenting because that was, that was what's going to happen because they had rejected him. So we see in this passage here, we're entering Passion Week, as I said earlier, which culminates the Revelation of the Son of God as the Messiah. The miracles have been performed. And that's why it says here, uh, praising God for all the mighty works that they had seen. They had seen all these miracles being performed. So all the miracles have been performed. 
Christ had demonstrated that he was God with all the miracles. That was the purpose of the miracles, by the way, to demonstrate that Christ was the Messiah, that he was of God, that he was the Son of God. So the consummation of the kingdom, we'll have to wait. The total consummation will have to wait until Christ comes back. But in the meantime, Christ triumphantly entered into the city of Jerusalem. And all the details prophesied in the Old Testament, which what we read in the responsive reading and others, they were sovereignly orchestrated to show how the reality completes all the types and foreshadowings of Christ. That's why we saw that song, Christ the True and Greater. Christ the True and Greater uh, Isaac. He's the True and Greater David. He's the True and Greater Moses. He's the True and Greater Adam. All the types and shadows in the Old Testament point to Christ. That's why we sing songs like that because they, 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 they speak of everything pointing to Christ. All of creation, all of history points to one man and that is Jesus Christ. All those prophecies that we see in the Old Testament, all those sacrificial systems, all those laws, all point to Christ. Christ himself said he did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law, to bring those laws to, to Christ. All of them are fulfilled in him. All those persons, all those types are pointing to Christ. And now we see the revelation of those prophecies being fulfilled. And this meekness and humility in which Christ came into Jerusalem contrasts to the powerful interest that someone else would have come into Jerusalem with. If it was anyone else coming to Jerusalem, they would have been on a nice regal horse with regal, guard, regal garbs on it. They would have been dressed in the regal garbs. And they would have people uh, probably around them, fanning them and celebrating them as they came into the city. But Christ came humbly on a colt. He didn't come on a regal horse as all the other rulers of their day did. He came in humble, although he is the king and he is the messiah. So his arrival was a dramatic, this was a very dramatic moment. We can't get this in our context. But again, for months, everything was leading up to this part, as I read you in Luke 9 and 51. Everything from that point forward was leading to this moment. So it was almost like a, a climax. And so Christ was fully aware that death would be the result. But he chose to make an open proclamation of himself as God's Messiah in the holy city of Jerusalem. So this is what this week is all about. So with that, we're going to look at three principles this morning. Simply, the requesting of the cult and what that means, the receiving of the praise and what that means, and the rebuking of the Pharisees and what that means. So first we see the requesting of the cult, verses 28 through 34. He went on ahead to Jerusalem, and he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, at the foot of Mount Olives, and he says to the disciples, told him to go to a village 
and they will see a coat tied that no one has ever sat on. It hadn't been broken yet, so to speak. And then if someone asks, they're supposed to say what the Lord has meaning of. Now this all takes place at the beginning of the Passover week where they celebrated their liberation uh, from Egyptian uh, slavery. So first it says here, after that, he said these things, he was going on ahead, ascending to Jerusalem. Now this was Christ's last entry into Jerusalem. This was his last time. Jerusalem means the city of peace. Salem means peace. So Jerusalem is literally the city of peace. But it was also called uh, among the, the Jews the city of David because this is where David's throne was. When the kingdom was split in two after, I think, Jeroboam, uh, one of Solomon's sons, you had the northern kingdom of uh, Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. The two tribes in Judah, the, the center of that kingdom was in Jerusalem. And for the northern kingdom, their uh, seat was in Samaria. So Jerusalem holds a special place among the Jewish people, just as it does now. Many people travel to Jerusalem. They take trips to Israel to tour the city. So Jerusalem is known as the city of peace, the city of David, and also the holy city of God. Now I'll say this, I know, I know friends that have gone to Israel and taken trips to, you know, of course go to Jerusalem, which is where a lot of people go to. And you know, you hear people say, man, I feel so close to God there. That's not the way you want to look at that city. <laughs> Jerusalem was in ruins. It's good to visit the city. There's nothing wrong with it. Seeing the places where Christ walked and all those things. But there's no, nothing more special about being in Jerusalem than being in Anson, Alabama. You're not closer to God by being in Jerusalem. There is no holy city on this earth. Other false religions have that. Uh, Muslims, uh, those who are uh, Islamic, uh, their holy city is Mecca which is in Saudi Arabia, where uh, they're supposed to take a pilgrimage at least one time in their life uh, to the Hajj, which is the march around uh, the temple in Mecca. That's, that's part of being a, a, a Muslim, is taking that one pilgrimage uh, to Mecca at least once in their lifetime. That's the goal of every good Muslim. That's their, quote, holy city. But Christians, we don't have a holy city. Our holy city is waiting for us. And that is the new Jerusalem. Not the old Jerusalem that is uh, laying in ruins because God had brought judgment upon them. So one doesn't feel closer to God or have a special connection to God when they go to Jerusalem. Okay, so we must understand there's no, because even uh, Jesus with the Samaritan woman, when the Samaritan women, a woman said, you know, we have a special place where, where uh, we worship. You know, the Samaritans worship here. And you, the Jews, worship him. But what did Jesus tell her? God is seeking those who are true worshipers, who worship him, how? In spirit and truth. Not in a so-called special place or a special city or a special place in a city. So when we're looking at Jerusalem being the holy city of God, this was in the context of ancient uh, Israel, ancient Jerusalem. And then we see the significance of the Mount of Olives. It came about when we approached Bethpage and Bethany near the mount that is called 
Olivet. Now, Bethany was a village about two miles uh, from uh, Jerusalem. It was like on, the, I think, the eastern side of the Mount of Olives. And this place is significant because uh, Zechariah, as we read in our responsive reading, he has spoken of a time when the Lord will become king over all the earth, and on that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives. Again, this is Zechariah almost 600 years before these events that we're reading now, speaking of Christ standing where? On the Mount of Olives. So this place was very important in redemptive history. This is in Zechariah 14 and 9. So Jesus appeared on the Mount of Olives to proclaim himself as Israel's true deliverer. That's what he was proclaiming uh, himself to be. That's why he came into Jerusalem to show them your true deliverer is here. Not all the ones who came before, all the ones who came before him were pointing them to him as the true deliverer, as their true king, as their true redeemer. Now, in the other accounts of this very same event, the Jews were looking for deliverance from Rome and from Roman's rule, but that is not what they received, and they were disappointed about that. So the Mount of Olives, again, is a hill outside of uh, Jerusalem, and Luke said that it was a Sabbath day journey from uh, Jerusalem. He says that in Acts 1 and 12. And this Mount of Olives also was a place where King David uh, wept as he fled Jerusalem from his son Absalom. When you get deep into uh, 2 Samuel, around, I think, chapters 12, 13, 14, you're going to see David's own son pursuing him. David's own son, Absalom, set himself up as, as king. And David wept at the Mount of Olives because of what his son was doing. So the Mount of Olives carries special significance in Jewish history. And also during this week, Jesus spent his nights in the Mount of Olives. You'll see that in Luke 21, a couple chapters up. You'll see where he spent time in the Mount of Olives. So this wasn't just any old place. Okay? This was a place of, of very important significance uh, to the ministry of Christ. And so now we see him giving his instructions. So what's the big deal about this colt, this horse? He sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village opposite you, in which as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Now, a colt is a young male horse that is, I think, less than five or less than four years old. So it's basically a young horse. Hadn't been broken in yet, hasn't been broken, hasn't been ridden. Now, age five, colts are either called stallions or geldings. A stallion is a horse that breeds, basically. That's what a stallion does. And a gelding is a horse that has been uh, neutered, okay, uh, to use a, a more euphemistic word. So you have a gelding, you have a stallion. The stallions are, are put out to breed. Those are the breeding horses. And then you have the geldings, which are 
the ones who can't read. And those are the ones who you see in, in uh, they're like Broncos. That's what a Bronco is. A Bronco is a gelding, a, a wild horse that's been, um, you know, uh, neutered. So they become a wild because of that. And so that, that's what Broncos are. Those bucking horses you see in rodeos and stuff like that, that's what they are. They are geldings. And so a colt after the age of five either becomes a stallion or becomes a, a gelding. So it was a young horse that was less than uh, four years old or less. So he told them that he would go find one tied up. Now just imagine for a second, I asked Brother Daryl, could you run down, down to Walgreens for me? And this one be a, a man standing out outside of Walgreens that's wearing an orange shirt with brown khakis on. And he's going to have some money for you to give to me. The devil will say, did you call him? Let him know I'm coming. Did you call him? Let him know I was on my way. <laughs> and I say, no, it's just, it's just going to be a man standing down there. He's going to have an orange shirt and brown pants, and he's going to have some money uh, to give you to give me. And don't take your money, by the way. And then he goes down there, and that man is standing there, same description. And you say, hey, uh, I'm there. Ronald sent me down to, you know, who sent you? And you'll say, Ronald, okay, here it is. That's almost, that's a weak illustration, but the, the point is that no one had control over that happening. He told these men to go these two disciples, you're going to find a coat tied up that hadn't been ridden before. How could he know all that unless he was the Messiah of God? Amen. Only God would know that. So again, Jesus was proving that he is the Messiah, that he is God, that he is the true king. Now, animals who had never been used were used for holy purposes in scripture in the past but again this is a uh, prophecy that is fulfilled in Zechariah 9 and 9 your king comes to you humble and riding on a donkey and Jacob's prophecy again just reminder in um, Genesis 49 the scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs and the obedience of the nations is his he would tether his donkey to a vine, his coat to the choicest branch. So this prophecy is being fulfilled as we read it. And as the people see it, it is being fulfilled. Now, those Jews who were steeped in Old Testament in Jesus' day, they knew this association. They knew that this was the Messiah. That's why they said, Hosanna in the highest. How did they know that Christ came in the name of the Lord? Because they're literally seeing prophecy being fulfilled before their eyes. And this was yet another reason to see Jesus as Messiah. This is another reason to believe in him as the Holy One sent of God. And so then we see more details. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, who are you untied? Why are you untying it? You shall speak. The Lord has need of it. This is almost like a password, I guess. That's what I think is like a secret password. So when the animals' owners heard these words, they knew that the donkey 
uh, was the Jesus that would let it go because they knew that these disciples belonged to him. And this shows the significance of the Lordship of Jesus. So the disciples, they obeyed finding the colt. He says, and those who were sent away and found it just as they just as he had told them. So they obeyed. They were obedient to Christ. They did not rebel against Christ. They didn't say, why did he go get a donkey? No, they obeyed him. Because he is the Messiah. They obeyed the commands of Christ. For us as believers, we obey the words of Christ. We obey his commands. Why? Because he's the Messiah. He's the one who was sent of God to bring salvation into the world. He was the one who saved us from our sins. So what do we do? We give obedience to him and to his words. That's what we do, and that's what we see the disciples doing. They said, the Lord has need of it. So they were fulfilling prophecy, and they were being obedient to the Lord as Messiah. So we see obedience as this part of the requisitioning of this cult. And then after he has the cult, we see that Christ receives praise. So verses 35 and 36. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the cult, they set Jesus on it. Now, Instead of, you all, you all seen pictures of royal horses where they had the nice little saddle on them, all braided in gold, and had the thing going up the horse's neck and on his face and everything. Looks all regal and shiny. Y'all seen pictures of that on movies and stuff like that, how, how regal those horses look? Christ didn't have a saddle to sit on. They took off their outer garments, their cloaks, and threw them over <laughs> the back of the horse. There was nothing regal or royal about that. That was, that was like humility. That was showing the humility of Christ and the humility of him coming into the city. He was a humble king. He was a humble and mighty king. This is showing again the humility of Christ, how humble he is in doing God's will, how humble he is and how we can approach him. He's not someone that we have to tremble before as we approach him. No, he is the humble king. He is the God king. He is the God man who is, again, meek and lowly in heart. As I referenced earlier, Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30, for I am meek and lowly in heart. And meek doesn't mean weak. It doesn't mean soft. It doesn't mean limp-wristed. His meekness had power. His humility had power. Why? Because he's the king. He's God. He's the sovereign. And so they brought to Jesus. They threw their garments on the coat. And then they put Jesus on So why did he receive praise? It was for the works of that he had done and for his messianic mission. Jesus 
was returning like a conquering king. It says in verse 37, as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples, these are his true followers, began to rejoice, excuse me, and praise God. So Christ was entering Jerusalem like a conquering king returning victorious from war. He was returning as the victorious ruler. He reigned victorious when he came into Jerusalem. He was enthroned regally on the horse. In some of his ministry, Jesus withdrew. Jesus withdrew to pray. He withdrew from the crowds. But this time, he comes out in public because his time of sacrifice was at hand. You know what? This is the greatest coming out ever. And this is Jesus coming out as the Messiah. There were times when Christ healed people and told his disciples, don't tell anyone about it, or told the person who he healed, don't say anything about it. You know, my time has not yet come. And when he's talking about his time, he's talking about his time of being revealed as the Messiah of God, as the, the anointed, the Holy One, sent of God. His time had not yet come, so don't go tell a soul yet. That's why he withdrew some time. That's why he did some things in secret. He healed in secret and again told those people not to say anything about it just yet. Because his time had not yet come. But guess what? Now his great coming out party has come. You hear about people all the time in our day coming out. <laughs> coming out of the closet or whatever. And what they're doing is revealing their rebellion against God. But they make it sound good. This is the true coming out. This is the coming out of Christ revealing himself as Messiah, as the deliverer of his people. As the one who, a few days later, is going to suffer and die. And as the one who, a week later, will raise, be raised from the dead by God the Father. This is the most important coming out that should be celebrated. And that is the celebration of the Messiah. And these people did this. It said they began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice. Why? Because this is the one who came in the name of the Lord. Everything from this point forward in Christ's ministry was going to be in public. Everything. His trials before Pilate, before the high priest, his betrayal, Peter's denials, all of the events of Christ's life after this until the cross were going to be public. This was his coming out party, so to speak. And it was a glorious one. Now, what did they do? As he was going, they spread their garments in the road, going back just a little bit, 
the end of verse 36. This was paying homage to royalty. And there's another passage that points to that. If you look at 2 Kings, the ninth chapter, verse 13, we will see uh, this also happening. This is when uh, Jehu was anointed king of Israel. 2 Kings 9 and 13. Then each man hastened to take his garment and put it under him on the top of the steps. And they blew trumpets saying, Jehu is king. So this is what they did. This was custom for them. In greeting a king, they, they took their garments off and laid them on the ground for the king to be coronated and, and walk over or whether he's on a horse or not to be escorted over. So that's what they that's what they did. So this was custom for that to happen. This is how you pay homage to royalty. And this is, you know, say, man, what are they doing throwing their jackets down? No, this is this we have to understand the context. And this is what they did in those days. It was a spontaneous act of submission. That's what it was. It was submission along with the highest honor being done. Now, the roles were picked up in the rear, laid back down in the front. That's what they did. As, he, as, the, as the roles were walked over, they picked them up again and went down the farther and put them down again. So basically, they just kept putting the roles down as the king, as, as the royalty walked down. They just kept picking up the roles and bringing them to the front. So it was a constant act of, of submission until the person got where they were going. So that's what they did in antiquity when they greeted royalty. Seems like a lot of work, doesn't it? But Christ is worthy of that. He was worthy of that. So why are they praising him? For his messianic miracles. And as he now is approaching the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. And again, going back to Luke 9, we see all the miracles that Christ had performed. That means that people had seen them along the way. They had seen these miracles. They saw him perform them. Just looking at a, a, doing a cursory overlook, Jesus sent out the 72. He had a parable of the Good Samaritan. He had Martha and Mary. He had uh, Jesus casting out uh, the demons in uh, Luke 11 and the return of the unclean spirit. You also have, uh, it was another miracle that I saw, the woman with the disabling uh, spirit for 18 years. He healed her. That's in uh, Luke, the 13th uh, chapter. That was another miracle. You had the man that was healed on the Sabbath in Luke uh, 14. 
So obviously, and then of course, interspersing that you had all the all the parables that he gave also. So in those last months leading up to the cross, he was teaching them the parables of the kingdom, and he was also performing uh, miracles. In Luke 17, he cleansed uh, 10 lepers. So you see all these miracles being performed, and then he heals a blind beggar here in Luke, the 18th chapter. So all these people, basically what it shows us, all these people who were praising Christ, they had followed him in his ministry. They had followed him around while he was doing all these things. So they saw all the miracles. They heard all of the teachings. They heard all the parables. They were his true disciples. So when they finally had the opportunity to come out and praise him, guess what? They did. They were not ashamed of it. They praised him for the miracles that they had seen. Why? Because again, these miracles showed them that he was the Messiah, that he was truly God, because only God could perform these miracles. Only God could. Only God had the power to perform these miracles that Christ had performed. He was performing with the power of God. And so when these people saw this, they knew that he was the Messiah. So that's why they gave praise to him for that. And that's why they said here in verse 38, Blessed is the king, the ruler, the sovereign, who comes in whose name? The name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. This is echoing uh, Psalm 118 and 26, verse 26. These people called upon Jesus as the blessed king that comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, when he says name of, that means that he is the representative of the Lord as a Messiah Christ is being glorified his coming peace has been established between God and his people because of Christ Christ is coming in the name of the Lord as an ambassador of the Lord he's representing God the Father Just like a deputy sheriff represents whoever the sheriff is. Christ is coming as the representative. He's coming in the name of the Lord. So it's pointing to him as the king, the all-highest, the almighty. And that's what we praise him as. Christ is king over us people. He is our ruler. He is our sovereign. He came in the name of the Lord to do what brings salvation. To seek and save those who are lost. He did not come to call the righteous but the sinners to repentance. That is why he came to fulfill God's mission. And guess what? That mission is still being fulfilled until he comes back. When he comes back, he's going to judge. 
And he comes back, as the writer says, every knee shall bow. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Everyone is going to acknowledge him as king. Even the most diehard atheists, even the most diehard secularists, even the most diehard God denier will one day acknowledge him as God. Then he will bow. If he don't bow on this earth, he's going to bow in the life to come. They're going to bow. Why? Because he is the king. So what do we do now? We praise him and we worship him and we honor him as our king. Christ is our king. He is king of kings and lord of lords. He is over all. He is our God. He is our ruler. He is the one who reigns. He is the almighty. And he is the one who is now being truly glorified in this passage. And then we see the rebuking of the Pharisees, who are always been rebuked, by the way. <laughs> so verse 39, they, the Pharisees asked Jesus, basically trying to tell Jesus what to do. They asked him to rebuke the Pharisees. And some of the Pharisees in the multitude said to him, Teacher, notice they didn't call him Messiah. They didn't call him Lord. They didn't call him King. They call him teacher. They saw Jesus as just a rabbi. Isn't that what people do now with Jesus? They, they see him as a, what, a good moral teacher who taught some good things, who taught the golden rule, who taught people to love each other. That's what unbelievers and false believers see Jesus as, just a good teacher who did some good things who helped heal some people, who fed the hungry and clothed the naked, like the social justice Jesus. Just as a mere teacher. Just as Jesus asked the disciples, who do men say I am? Some say you're Elijah, one of the prophets. But who do you say I am? Peter says you are the Christ, you are the Messiah. And then Jesus told Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Who do we see Jesus as? Do we see him like the Pharisees, just as a, as a moral teacher? Or do we see him as God, the Savior of the world, the Redeemer of those who come to him in salvation? Do we see him as Redeemer? Do we see him as Lord? Do we see him as our King? Do we see him as our Savior and Redeemer? Or do we just see him as a good teacher? Many people moralize Jesus in their sermons. They teach moral lessons without teaching the gospel. Not teaching people that you have to bow down to this Jesus, that you have to obey this Jesus. That if you love him, you have to keep his commandments. You can't just teach good things, teach moral things. Shoot, an atheist can get up and do a TED talk telling you how to be a good moral person. But the morality has to come from somewhere. It comes from God's word, although they deny God's word. Anybody can give up and give a good, good self-help motivational speech about being your best self, fulfilling your full potential, or manifesting different things. Anybody can teach you that nonsense. But when they teach you that, you need your sins forgiven. 
Will they teach you that sin is real? And that you have to repent of your sin and turn to Christ and be saved? Or you will be lost forever? You know what? That's good moral teaching too. <laughs> That's solid moral teaching. Many people like to cherry pick what they like about Christ or what they like about the Bible. You have people who are not even Christians. They'll get on TV, especially if they're uh, trying to defend their unreligious, ungodly positions and say, well, you know, Jesus, Jesus did teach us to love each other. He did. He also taught us to repent and believe the gospel. He also taught us that he is the only way to the Father. That no one can come to God except through him. That he is the only true God. He taught that too. Did you miss that part of your Bible? Did you miss that part of Jesus' teachings or the, quote, red letters? So these Pharisees saw Jesus as just a teacher. And they said, teacher, rebuke your disciple. And of course, they were objecting to the enthusiasm that the people had for worshiping Christ. They didn't want to see Jesus proclaimed as Messiah. They were not in favor of what was happening at all. They were, in essence, jealous. They wanted Jesus to calm the people. They wanted Jesus' disciples to calm the people down from praising him. But what did Jesus tell them? If I tell you, if these were silent, if these people were silent, so the Pharisees wanted to squelch the joy of this occasion, and Jesus rebuked them. So if the disciples had stopped expressing their praise, Guess what will cry out? The very stones, the rocks will cry out. What does this mean when he says that? First of all, crying out is a testimony to both praise and condemnation. Someone can cry out a shout of praise. Someone can also cry out a shout of condemnation. Now, what Jesus, you know, could have been saying is that the disciples of silent, the rocks themselves will be forced to offer praise. Now, who can make rocks cry out? God. He created them. What this shows is all creation was made to worship the King who was Lord of all. All creation. God can make rocks talk if he wanted to. You say, man, you're crazy. No, I'm not. God created the rocks. Of course, they talk on cartoons. <laughs> right? Yeah, the moose and the dog. Rocky and Bullwinkle talking, right? Which one was the moose? Bullwinkle was the moose? Yeah, Rocky and Bullwinkle. Two of uh them. -oh. 
a dog and a moose talking on the cartoon, right? You know, Rocky and Bullwinkle. For those who are of a certain age, they, they know that cartoon. But God can literally make rocks cry out if he wanted to because he's God. He made them. He has sovereign power over them. So what Jesus is illustrating here is that all creation was made to worship him. And my wife was laying in bed this morning, you know, laying our windows up, heard the birds just going at it. You know, you don't hear them at night. As soon as the dawn cracks, as soon as the sun cracks the sky, guess what? You get those birds chirping, calling each other. They're, they're worshiping God. That's what they're doing. That's what they were made to do. They're chirping. Just listen to all, you know, sometimes just listen to all the different sounds of nature. When you're out in the woods, you hear all these different sounds. These are, all these animals are doing their worship of their creator. They're not aware of who their creator is, but we are. All creation was made to worship the king who was Lord of all. So Jesus was saying, guess what? If these disciples don't cry out, the rocks will cry out. In other words, you cannot stop the king of all from being praised. And you know what? No one should be able to stop us from praising our Lord. No one should rebuke us. Or if they do, guess what? We praise them even louder. We speak of God even louder. We should not tamper our voices in praise and adoration to be God. We shouldn't be ashamed to say, man, I you go to your unbelieving co-workers and say, didn't the Lord create a beautiful day today? That's giving praise to God. Acknowledging that it is God who gave you this beautiful day. You just go to your co-workers and say, didn't God make a beautiful day today? I don't believe God. Well, God made a beautiful day today. Friends, that's a way of showing praise and adoration to God. Don't mean you have to do it on purpose, but that's just how we show praise to God who is over all creation. Or if someone comments on how beautiful this day is, you can say God is the greatest artist. God writes the best stories. God makes the most beautiful skies. Even when it's 98 degrees outside. <laughs> With 100% humidity, and as soon as you step outside, you start sweating. Yes, God made this day too. <laughs> but God also gave man the ingenuity to, to make air conditioning. There you go, see? See what I did there? So you say, hey, God gave man the, the, the ingenuity to be able to make air conditioning to, to provide us with comfort. It's still giving praise to God. God created the elements that are used to make air conditioners. The steel and aluminum or uh, whatever gas they used to make the Freon, all those gases that make Freon, whatever Freon is composed of, all those chemical elements, guess what? They're already in nature. God already made them. So there are myriad ways that we can praise God. As king, as we think about this week, these people praise God for the miracles that he performed. Guess what? We praise God for what he has done in our life. We praise God for what we've seen him do in other people's lives, other the lives of other saints, the lives of other believers. We can praise God and not be ashamed to. 
not be ashamed to praise and thank God. And that goes into our, our applications here as we get ready to close. What types of physical displays of verbal expressions of praise and ad adulation do we offer up to the Lord? Look at what I was just talking about. That's, that's what we do. Again, you don't do it to put on a show to let your works be seen before men, but at the same time, there should be times when we just offer praise to God and show other people, other unbelievers, look, this is a gift from God. Your life that you have, the very breath that you breathe, the inhaling and the exhaling is a gift from God. The medicine that you take to to ease the pains and discomforts of your body is a gift from God because God gifted chemists to come up with chemical formulas to make and manufacture these drugs that you take to go into your body. And your systems in your body cooperate with those drugs in order to have an effect on your body in a positive way. That is all God. God does that. God, when we think about it like that, we can sing our doxology, praise God for whom our blessings flow, because it is God who does all of this, and he is worthy of our adulation. The miracles of medicine, the miracles of childbirth. Do you know childbirth is a literal miracle? You have an actual other body growing inside of you. A whole nother person to all the moms in here who've given birth and haven't murdered their babies. You had a literal person, another human being, growing inside of you until an appointed time that God makes that baby come out. Man, that is a miracle. It is a miracle. God made our, our bodies are a miracle. How God made us. Made us male and female. He made our bodies to work a certain way. It is not just something that happens at random. You prick yourself hard enough, guess what you're going to feel? Pain. You know what pain is? Pain is your body, your brain telling your body that something is wrong. That something's amiss. That signal goes right to your brain. And your brain sends that signal back to that place and it starts what? Throbbing. And your body automatically begins the healing process. Your blood begins to, to clot until it coagulates, until it hardens. Unless you're on certain drugs that, that thins your blood, not even do that, but in the after human process, your blood begins to clot. And when it clots, it begins to coagulate. And it begins to do what? Heal itself. The next thing you know, you got a scalp. The next thing you know, that scalp, you don't I mean, sometimes you pluck it off, but if you don't know what's there, all of a sudden the scalp is gone. Then they say, no, a week or a month later, your skin is back to normal. Unless it's a deep scar that tore some tissue. Like when I burned myself when I was 12 years old, my, my aunt's iron is a, a second degree burn on my arm, and the burn mark is still there. But other than that, that's because I burned some skin. You know. But your body naturally heals itself like that. Why? Because God intricately made us. And that's why we praise God. That's a miracle. We have cause to praise God and offer verbal expressions of adoration and adulation to him. 
just like these people did for the miracles he performed. The miracle of salvation is another thing. Do you know salvation is a miracle? God takes those who are spiritually dead and makes them alive in him. We can't save ourselves. We can't raise ourselves from the dead. The greatest miracle is salvation because God took spiritually dead people. As, as, as Paul said in Ephesians 2, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And later in that chapter, he says, but he made us alive. It was God who did it. Only God can raise a dead person from the dead. Just like he raised Christ from the dead. He can raise the spiritually dead from the dead. Only God can do that. And friends, that is a miracle. He saved you when you didn't even know you were going to be saved. I didn't know I was going to be saved when I was in high school and when I was in elementary school. I had no idea that God was going to save me on May 12, 1991. I didn't know that day when I went to church that God was going to save me. It was a miracle. I was spiritually dead. You else, all you other believers in here, you were spiritually dead. You couldn't save yourself. No good works you did could save you, no matter how good the two shoes you were. You may not have been in trouble in your life. You may, you may not have stolen as much as a snicker bar from the grocery store or a, a penny candy when the penny was a candy at one time. But you were still dead in your sins. And someone greater than you and outside of you had to save you. Salvation is a miracle. And because of that, we praise God. So we see this triumphal entry. We have reason to praise God also. Lastly here, how do false religious leaders today try to silence the testimony and praise the genuine believers by telling us we need to be quiet? To be ashamed of being a Christian, to be ashamed of Christ, to be ashamed of the cross, to be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord, to be ashamed of other Christians. The world tells us to shut up, Christian. You bigot. Isn't that what they tell us? They tell us to be quiet. We're not going anywhere. They tell our church to stop preaching the truth. We're not going anywhere. We're going to stand on the truth. They tell us to be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, and I stand with Paul, and we all stand with Paul who are true believers. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. We're not ashamed. We're not going to let the world silence our testimony. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. <coughs> Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for seeing Christ coming in into Jerusalem in his triumphal entry. Thank you for the testimony of the disciples who offered praise to him for the mighty works that they had seen. Lord, help us today as believers to not be afraid to physically display 
or verbally express praise and adoration to you. Help us, Lord, to not be ashamed to offer up words of thanksgiving to you and for you to your glory. Lord, as we go into this week, help us to center our thoughts as we go through work and school and other activities to think about Christ on his march to his death, his march to the cross. To think about the passion of Christ, the suffering, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. Lord, bless this word. May it encourage the faithful. And may it bring sinners to repentance and salvation in the Lord. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen.